That's about it. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for another day to uh, be here, gathered together as your children. Help us not take this time for granted. It's very special. Uh, we don't deserve this church or our pastor or even the freedom to learn your word in this beautiful place. We thank you for it. We appreciate it. And we ask that you uh, help us appreciate the message tonight uh, and be eager to eat the meal that you have before us. Father, most of all, we're eternally grateful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, out of heaven to become a man, to take the place of all mankind on the cross, to be judged for our sins once for all. Father, we're so grateful for taking our debt out of the way so that by faith in your precious Son, we can be saved. We ask that you bless this message, guide us by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of your Spirit. Amen. The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 50. So sin is so deceitful in our lives that the Spirit has given us a bold conclusion, which came out on Thursday and Sunday, actually, uh, to bring to light what's really going on in our lives. So if we're honest, here we go. We pervert everything. In other words, let's not kid ourselves. We really do, we do tweak in a negative way. We tweak probably every area of our lives uh, away from purity, the purity that God designed. And as came out on Sunday, we don't just pervert the obvious seedy things, we pervert the good things of God. That's what's really sick about it. That's what's really um, an illustration of the sickness of our sinful natures. We pervert the good things of God and the pure, simple things He gave us. So the Spirit has told us that this statement on the board is not an overstatement. So please don't dismiss it as an exaggeration and do yourself harm in your own soul. Accept this reality on the board so that you can be set free in the end. And this goes for each one of us. Like, unless you individually accept this as truth, even in your own life, the things that you do to the good things of God, you're not going to have the chance to overcome it and be set free from yourself, really. And God is telling us to take time to think about this statement on the board and how we ourselves pervert things and how some of our personal norms and standards are perverted. We may not see it yet, but some of our personal norms and standards that we think right now are good are actually not pure. So I love Pastor's examples on Sunday, and I want to share these again with you, so I put them on the board here. I mean, what just good illustrations, right? God's things are simple and pure and beautiful. What do we do? We add to it, we complicate it, and we twist it. So, for example, under the category of we pervert, pervert everything, God says, here's some food and drink, eat and be merry. Our response, I'm going to overeat and become intoxicated with drink. We could look at any area of our lives, and food and drink is a simple illustration, one that you might not even think you, you pervert. We could look at any area of our lives and see how we mess it up. 
if we're willing to go there and be honest and, and examine it. And you, you can find things. You can find things if you're, if you're open. And uh, we mess it up in our souls first, and then in our actual lives, then in our actual living. Just something to think about. We also saw this example. God says, I'm going to make procre- procreation something enjoyable between husband and wife. Our response is, I'm going to have sex with whoever I want. Again, we take something good, something meant as a pure blessing, and make it impure, first in our hearts, and then in our actions. And then this example here, God says, go out and help your neighbors, love your enemies, pray in secret, and I will reward you. Awesome, wonderful, simple, fatherly advice, if you will. Our response is, I'm going to go do some good in this world, and then I'm going to buy a trumpet and announce all of my good works in order to glorify myself in my body. The things we do. God says, trust me, I'll reward you. We, in essence, say, I don't really trust you, so I'm going to go for the reward now. Isn't that what we say when we, when we decide to take any of these shortcuts? Aren't we really saying, I don't really trust you, that you have your best in mind for me and you're going to bless me? In other words, we're not willing to wait. We basically are impatient and want a reward now. So the sin nature has entered man into the realm of evil, if you think about it. Anytime someone takes a blessing of God and twists it, they've entered into evil. Who the heck do we think we are? The things we do to the pure gifts of God. But that is the greatness of the deceitfulness of sin within us. It is, it's beyond uh, discussion. It's beyond words even. If we could get to the um, wickedness of it, if we could really see the wickedness of it, it's beyond what we even right now are thinking. And at the same time, sin is convincing us that these things are no big deal. These exaggerations or these additions to God's blessings. As came out on Sunday, one of the perverted excuses man argues is the separation of body and spirit for the sake of fleshly indulgence. So a perverted excuse man enters into is separating body and spirit. Separating spiritual from physical as though physical doesn't matter. As though physical, you can be spiritual without physical self-control, let's say, or discipline. That's what the flesh wants us to believe, that it's not a big deal, that maybe they're not even related that much, maybe it's not that bad, right? We think if we're doing well spiritually, that abusing or neglecting our physical bodies doesn't affect our souls. But why would we think that? That's what we really think deep down. Not everybody, but we have thought that at one point, or some of you have thought that in the immediate uh, recent past, and now your eyes are being opened to it. How can uh, neglect of the physical body not affect your soul? Hey, think about how you feel. Think about how you physically feel, okay? We're talking about physical. When you neglect your body, abuse your body, when you don't sleep, when you eat too much, think about how you physically feel. Does that affect your soul? Yeah, you feel like, you, up here you feel horrible, don't you? 
you feel miserable. You're cranky. No one can even talk to you. That's your soul. That's messed up because of the physical neglect. So these things are really intimate, but sin rationalizes it away. And I think it's just laziness and selfishness that our flesh promotes within us. So we each have to decide, especially as believers in Jesus Christ, what are we going to do with our bodies? This is like a real question we each have to ask ourselves. Like, don't pass the buck, so to speak. Don't just throw this, dismiss it. What am I going to do with my body? You have to do something with it, right? You can't say, oh, nothing. I'll ignore that part. You can't. You live in your body. <laughs> you, every day you have to do something with it. Good or bad or indifferent, but even indifferent means ugh, nothing, right? If you say, I'll do nothing with my body, you've just done something. Basically decide to be useless to the Lord. So you have no choice but to make a decision. What are we going to do with our bodies? How will we subject them to God as part of God's plan for our souls? Make the connection. It, it's very intimate. It's very real. As Romans 12, 1 told us, make a decisive dedication of your bodies. That's the word of God. Make a decisive dedication of your bodies, and that's part of our spiritual worship. That's the word of God. The Lord wants us to be fit and ready for service in all areas of our lives, just like he was. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was on earth fit and ready for service, always pleasing the Father, number one priority, whether in body, soul, or spirit, always pleasing the Father in everything He did. He wants us to imitate Him. Be fit, be ready for service. Don't waste away your life. So here's a key principle one more time from the pulpit. Christ exalted in our bodies. When we subject or submit this body to God's purposes and not our own, we can be a light on a hill to a lost and dying world, a physical example of Christ's love, even in persecution. Philippians 1.20 we saw, and 2 Corinthians 4.10. We can't replace the value of being a physical example before the eyes of men. That is so invaluable. Um, like, think of, think of if someone's in a jam. Let's say you're in a jam, and a fellow believer comes to stand by your side in the middle of that pit you're in. Does not their physical presence there with you encourage your heart tremendously? Especially if you're in a real jam with your back up against the wall. It requires physical presence. It's the power of a physical example of Christ's love. So this is our opportunity, even in persecution. And we can't replace the value of a physical example before the eyes of men. Not only is that person who stands by your side um, encouraging to your heart, maybe it's exactly what you needed, desperately, but also how about all those purveyors, all those people observing from close or far that you stepped up to this person's side, even though they, let's say, were unworthy or whatever. Christ's love is shining through, and people won't even understand it. That's our opportunity. 
And we can't underestimate the value of being a physical example of Christ's love. That's one thing James talked about in his letter, being justified before men, not just by faith, since they can't see our faith, they can't see our heart. Be justified by your works, James said. In other words, the good deeds we do in the body can be seen. They can't see our faith. They can see if we're standing next to our fallen brother. That's what they can see. And that's being justified by works as an evidence of supernatural God being with us and in us. So a little perspective. We must accept the wonderful opportunity for our body being a vessel of honor, not dishonor. I hope you all look at it this way in your soul, that it's a wonderful opportunity to bring glory to God in your body, whatever way that might be that day. Every day is going to be different. Can you imagine if you get to heaven and you literally would be able to look back and say, Every day of my life, I've brought some glory to God in my body. What a treat that'll be, huh? What a, uh, how do you describe it, right? Relief, uh, satisfaction, um, joy that we're going to have when we see him. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Can you imagine if every day, maybe that's part of your morning prayers from now on, you say, Lord, help me bring you glory today in my body somehow. And we don't, we don't waste a day, totally. We waste a lot of time. But we don't have to waste a whole day. So again, on the board, adopt this perspective. We must accept the wonderful opportunity for our body being a vessel of honor, not dishonor. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. And then we'll go to 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 22. And the Spirit inserted these verses last minute, and I mean last minute in the lesson, when I thought I was done. And then he brought this to my attention and said, put them in there. So here we are. You might have seen these before, but maybe you need to see something new, and maybe you haven't seen these before. So again, we must accept the wonderful opportunity for our body being a vessel of honor, not dishonor. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So there's an opportunity that you possess your own vessel. Let's talk about your body, which carries your soul around. You possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. That is an opportunity. We don't even deserve that opportunity, but we have it every day we wake up. And go to 2 Timothy 2.20. 2 Timothy 2.20. It's a daily choice. Second Timothy 2.20 Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor 
and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There it is in verse 21. He will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's part of God's purpose for us in this life, to bring him glory with our bodies. It's not just some some spiritual thing alone. It's not just um, come to church and take care of the spiritual side and then do whatever you want because you know the Word of God. Well, do you know it like knowledge or do you know it like it's your own wisdom? And if it is your own wisdom, you won't do whatever you want with your body because that's what wisdom would do. It would change you, change your attitude toward that. And if we don't believe this in our own souls that God has a purpose for our functions in our body every day, if we don't believe that in our own souls, we open our hearts up to deception. It might as well be an open door. Satan, come on in. Because this body doesn't really matter anyway. Whatever. You open the door to that kind of uh, influence in your life. It takes faith. We must let the light of Christ shine in every corner of our lives. That's been a message that came out on Sunday also. We must let the light of Christ shine in every corner of our lives because every part of us is meant to share in the purpose Christ has for us. Every part. Spirit, soul, and body. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 on the board. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what an awesome day that'll be, right? Without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? To have, to have that type of response from him? Saying, well done. Uh, you glorified me every day in, in not just your spirit and your soul, but you knew your body was part of it. What a, what a great day that'll be. But it involves all three parts of us. We notice Paul mentioned the whole of man, not just one part. That's what came out in Sunday's lesson. But we also see the priority given to the spiritual side of us, the physical part being under that umbrella. We see the order, in other words, in this verse on the board, spirit, soul, and body. And we see that same pattern in a recent scripture about looking at our motivation, about God looking at our motivation. We see the same pattern that we see right there on the board, the spiritual and then the physical. So, for example, on the board, we've gone here the last couple lessons, Hebrews 4.10. This time in the NIV, notice the order. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. And then it says, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So notice the spiritual is mentioned first, and then the physical. I love the insight we received from McDonald on this truth on Sunday on the board. There were two great points in this one passage here. He said, in the original creation, the spirit was of first importance, the body last. Sin reversed the order. Man now lives for body, 
and neglects the Spirit. When we pray for one another, we should follow the biblical order, putting spiritual welfare before physical needs. Something not even a lot of churches do to put the spiritual before the physical, to worry about and pray for someone else's spiritual whatever, correction or enlightenment, etc., before the physical. Sometimes with some churches, it's all physical. It's like, let's just go feed everybody, not knowing that they might have a spiritual problem that could set them free. I'm not even thinking that way. So it makes sense what he says. Uh, why not first pray someone gains peace in this situation? Maybe they're actually supposed to be there in that situation, and God wants them to gain peace from him. Who knows? That's the real deliverance that conquers any physical experience. That's what, that's what God's greatest hope is for us as our Father. Real deliverance that conquers any physical experience, that overrides, transcends any physical experience, even if you stay in it according to the will of God. So let me give you an example. Just think about this. Have you ever experienced a family member or a friend suffering from an illness or a tragedy? We all have. And when you first talk to them about it, okay? So think of when someone gets some bad news. Sudden, sudden change in their life or whatever, in their family or whatever. Someone gets some bad news. And when you first talk to them about it, if they're able to say to you, eye to eye, face to face, if they're able to say to you, I'm good. I'm good. I've accepted it. This is what God wants from me right now. Or he's giving me peace in this situation. If they're able to say that to you, doesn't that change everything? Doesn't that change everything? Like not just, uh, it's so hard to describe. These are supernatural spiritual things. But you could have one person with a, with a deadly sickness and another person with the same deadly sickness. And one accepts it and has God's perspective and viewpoint and trusts God and has faith. And the other one is panicking or whatever and has no faith. It changes everything in the whole dynamic in their soul. The one with faith obviously is spiritually delivered and at peace supernaturally. And then it changes everyone around them also to have peace. It changes everything. So how are we not praying for spiritual deliverance for our brothers and sisters? You know, especially those of us here that gather together like this intimately and follow each other's lives and all that. How are we not uh, eagerly praying for each other's spiritual deliverance in the situations that we know about amongst ourselves. That's the deliverance God has designed for his children. It's spiritual. We're going to see that in a couple minutes in an Old Testament passage, which gives us an analogy to the spiritual that God wants us to be blessed with. So the real victory is in spiritual deliverance and therefore freedom even if the body remains in a prison-like situation. So I say let's pray for each other, spiritually especially, as Pastor mentioned on Sunday. So a little more perspective on sanctification. This also came out on Sunday. We, every part of us, have a purpose, spirit, soul, and body. We, the whole of us, Spirit, soul, and body 
have a purpose, a divine purpose. Allah, 1 Corinthians 9, 26 through 27. We won't go there again. But what really hit me as I was reviewing Sunday's lesson is this word purpose on the board. When you hear the word purpose, it's like a sigh of relief, even to unbelievers. Hearing that word perks up anybody's ears. And that's because God built us to crave to know our purpose. That's why unbelievers are so miserable, because they don't realize their purpose, big picture. They don't realize why they're alive. They don't realize the purpose and all this craziness in this world. But God built us to crave to know our purpose. And the first step is believing you have one in the first place. If you're a believer and you don't believe you have a purpose from God, you've got a big problem. Like you really got to go with God, to God with that. You really got to start reading your Bible. If you don't even believe God has a purpose for your life, you need to repent because you're out of line and you need to trust God that he has a plan for your life. If you're still alive, no matter what you're going through, uh, God still has a plan and a purpose for the rest of your life. And to doubt God having a plan for your life is to be deceived into misery. It's to be deceived by your sin nature into meaninglessness. The lie that the world wants you to believe. That just, you know, whatever, live however you want and you die and life's over, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing left. That's what Satan wants you to believe. So don't be deceived into that, you know, misery. We always have a plan if we're in Christ Jesus, always. If you're still alive, another day to bring glory to God. Another opportunity. On the board, look at Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 in the message translation. Really love the message. I mean, it's great at times when you just need a, even an encouragement in a way of, of real life, how to, how to look at it in real life. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we're living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eye on us, had designs on us for glorious living, part of the overall purpose he's working out in everything and everyone. Great perspective. And the point the Spirit is making is that it's the whole of us that has a purpose. The Spirit, the soul, and the body. It's not part of us. It's not something we section out, like the spirituals over here and the rest we can do whatever we want. It's the whole of us that has a purpose. And there's a oneness to it. A way to live and function to the glory of God. What also came up on Sunday is this on the board. Perspective on sanctification. What is your purpose in this life? Make it personal. And you might not know all the details of God's plan for you, but generally speaking, you can. Um, spiritual gift-wise, you can. What is your purpose in this life? And is your purpose set by God or by your flesh? What's your purpose up here? When you wake up in the morning, what's your purpose? What's your motivation? What, what, what do you, as we talked about on Sunday, get out of bed for? That's where the subtle motivations lie. Very subtle motivations. What's your purpose? Is it set by God or set by the flesh? I, I was listening to a song today, and it was a good song, so it had good words, as we know. And uh, one of the lines was that God is rich 
in mercy. Just think about that. You're combining a physical term, in a way, being rich, with a spiritual term, mercy. God is rich in mercy. We think of rich in terms of physical things. Would you rather be rich in mercy or would you rather be rich with money? And don't just say the right answer because you know the right answer right now. Seriously, in your own head, oh, yeah, rich in mercy, I'm spiritual. When you wake up in the morning, what motivates you and what are you thankful for? Mercy or money? Seriously, I mean, this is a real test because we're all wicked to the core in our flesh and we're all selfish. And even when we think we've conquered this money thing, God will show you you haven't conquered this money thing. So just something to think about. Um, Is your purpose set by God or by your flesh? When you wake up in the morning, what are your motives? Uh, For example, physical food, chocolate chip pancakes, or spiritual food? What are your motives? When you wake up out of bed, I know the first couple minutes is tough, right? (laughs) You're in a fog. You don't want to wake up. When you wake up out of bed, what motivates you to get out of the bed? Is it food, physical food, coffee, or is there some type of spiritual motivation like I'm looking forward to reading my Bible. I'm looking forward to 10 minutes of alone time with God right now. And you can't force it either. You can't, again, right now say the right answer because you know the right answer. But what's going on up here? And at least if what your honest answer is, it's material things, at least be honest and ask God to change your heart. And I feel like, God, I mean, who doesn't do this, right? I know I, I, ugh, I'm disgusting. Sorry for thinking this way is my priority. You've got to fix it. I can't do it. You need to actually fix my motivation. So at least you're honest. Like, that's great. But don't lie to yourself. Because God's trying to set you free. And here you are lying to yourself. Remember a while ago, God had our pastor emphasizing being grateful for two things every morning we wake up. Hopefully you remember. But one was... I'm alive another day. Thank you, Lord, for another day to be alive. Don't deserve it. And I'm saved. Thank you, Lord, for salvation being a gift. And that's how to start your day. And maybe, just maybe, if you have, start with that gratitude towards him, maybe your motivation changes. Again, these are supernatural spiritual things. It's like, which, which comes first, right? Chicken or the egg? These are supernatural spiritual things. But maybe, just maybe when you submit to him like that or are grateful like that, he changes you and gives you good motivation. And motivation is everything. It really is. In God's eyes, motivation is everything. If we're willing, God will change our motivation for us. How's that? He'll do it all. He gives us faith. Even our faith is not of ourselves. So hang in there. On the board, perspective on sanctification again. Motivation is the standard God uses within man to determine the goodness of his actions in this life. Motivation really is everything. This is what God goes by. The heart. The motives. The intentions of the heart. Again, motivation is the standard God uses within man to determine the goodness of his actions in this life. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. 
So let's turn to this passage as an example of the principle on the board. <clears throat> and you might be familiar with this passage, but I want you to think of this passage as we read it in terms of motivation. First Corinthians three ten through fifteen. According to the grace of God, which he had, he, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now, that's a really interesting statement. So you mean two men can build on it, but build differently in how they build on it? Yeah. So it might look the same, but it's different. Each man must be careful how he builds on it. There is our motivation. Or God is looking for the attitude of the heart in how we build. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there's proper motivation, right? I can't do anything without Jesus Christ. That's proper motivation. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. And obviously we can't compare these things that are mentioned there, right? Gold, silver, and precious stones versus wood, hay, and straw. So there's obviously big differences in the quality of those. Each man's work will become evident. What becomes evident is whether our motivation for the good deeds we did was good or bad. Because God sees the heart. He sees it now, and at the judgment seat, he's going to clue us in on what he saw. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What makes uh, one work quality and another work not quality? Your motivation in God's eyes. Did you do it for me or did you do it for self in some way? On the two extremes, on the two extreme ends, did you do it because you loved me or did you do it because you loved yourself? Same exact deed, same exact building, same exact work for God. One done by a religious person who's self-righteous and wants the praise now, who doesn't want to wait for the reward. One died by, done by the uh, humble person says, I want to do it God's way. I'm not even going to tell anybody. That's the quality of each man's, each man's work. In verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So motivation really is everything. And some of us need to stop kicking against the net. We'll only get more tangled. I mean, you can picture a little kid, I guess, right? Like in some hammock, some hammock like made out of a net. And, you know, a kid gets his, his little foot caught in a little hole in the hammock or something. And instead of waiting for you to just lift him out nice and easy, he kicks and fights and screams, and now he's in three holes, right? That's us spiritually. And God's like, I'm just trying to lift you out. I'm right here. I want to lift you out. You won't let me. You won't repent. You won't 
change your mind and have um, a good motivation out of love for me. Stop kicking against the net. Let God cut you out of the net. The net being the entanglements of the flesh that we fall for. In other words, surrender while you're in the net. We don't, want, we don't like doing that, right? I'm in a net. I can't sit still. I've got to get out of this thing. And my own power, my own wisdom. No, God says surrender while you're in the net to His ways revealed to you in His Word. Maybe this very night for some of you, where you're finally willing to stop kicking. Maybe a light has been shown on your poor motivation. Be honest and then submit. Accept it, because you can't beat God, so just be humble and ask Him to change you. As we've repeatedly heard from James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. What part of that don't you believe? Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. It takes faith, and it takes faith in the truth that we're learning. And the truth will make you free. The truth is unmistakable, unavoidable, immutable. It is also immovable, implying we must be changed or sanctified to accommodate it, to come to it, not vice versa. The sinful flesh despises this reality because we want some credit, darn it. And we want to do it ourselves, and we want to do it our own way. We don't want to do it God's way. So we mustn't let our sinful nature continue to lead us into perverse realities. Perverse realities. Our norms. Perverted in some way. On the board. Again, what is normal? This came out on Sunday. The things that you cling to as foundational to your life are often the things that make you miserable. Consider the so-called highlights of your day. They are often fleshly indulgences. Isn't that true? Consider the highlights of your day. Maybe today or yesterday, what was, you know, what was your highlight? What was the most, quote-unquote, fun thing you did today or the most, I don't know, relaxing thing you did today? Was it something uh, a fleshly in a way? Was it a physical thing or something you gained, a possession? And if so, why is, it, why is it like that? Why is that what makes us happy? Why isn't attending church, reading your Bible, etc., your priority instead, or your highlight instead? Now, if it's not, best thing to do is admit it and go to God and ask for help. But this very point on the board, of which we are all guilty, is why the Spirit has now had us on 50 parts of the deceitfulness of sin. Not a surprise. I mean, look at this point on the board, folks. Guilty is charged. What are your highlights of your day? Are they fleshly in some way? We all fall for the lies. We all fall for, fall for wrong priorities. The flesh is that powerful and seductive. Again, more wicked than right now we even think it is. More wicked, more entrenched, more nasty 
than we even think it is, even after all these parts in this series. Our only hope is God sanctifying us. That's it. He has to do it. He has to complete the good work in us. That's why our only part is surrender. Stop kicking in the net. That's our only role in this thing, which, which is an act of faith, right? Surrender, faith, gift from God, ultimately. You figure that out. But that's our role in this. He has to sanctify us. We cannot do it ourselves. And until we like really admit that deep down in our soul and stop striving religiously, we're just going to be slaves of the wrong thing. If we surrender, we will experience His grace and mercy and gentleness in our lives. If we surrender. If we obey. So speaking of obedience, and we've been talking a lot about God testing our hearts, right, and our motives. I read a wonderful passage in Deuteronomy this week, and I want to share it with you because it brings several things together for us. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And as we read this, remember, most Bible scholars believe Israel is a picture of the believer's soul. So this passage is about Israel and God's relationship to Israel as as a nation, as a people. But remember, most Bible scholars believe Israel is a picture of the believer's soul, a picture of our spiritual life or walk, if you will. So as we read it, apply it to your own soul and see what God is doing in your life personally. Look at Deuteronomy 8.1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So this is our first point. That relates to every one of us. God did this to the Jews. He does it to us individually as his children. Why 40 years in the desert? Well, there are multiple reasons. But one reason was that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Without testing, we don't even know what's in our heart. We think we're doing fine. And God's like, what was your your motivation when you got up this morning? You smelled the pancakes and that's why you got up? He's testing our hearts along the way, step by step. He's testing our hearts a lot in this congregation. So again, uh, verse 2. You shall remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. In other words, the word of the Lord will sustain you, if you're willing, if you trust me. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus, you are to know in your heart 
that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. You are to know in your heart. Do you know this in your heart? That the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Now, as we read on, keep spiritual deliverance in your mind. Spiritual deliverance in your mind here. Okay, God is blessing the Jews uh, logistically, physically, with provisions. Think of spiritual provisions. Think of soulish provisions, okay? Look at verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills. Think of peace and joy and love. Flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Remember we talked about spiritual deliverance earlier? When someone's in a horrible situation, but they have peace and they say, I'm good with it. Nothing like that wealth. This is a picture of spiritual wealth. Verse 10, when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So think of spiritual slavery. Think of slavery to sin. God brought us out of slavery to sin. And what do we do? We forget the Lord our God and live for self with this new freedom we've been given in Christ. Verse 14, Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who has brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. <laughs> Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. So God is testing our hearts in this congregation. He has been for quite a while. To whom much is given, much is required. And the results 
our spiritual freedom and deliverance for those whose motives are love for the Lord. And I know this is convicting. Uh, It's very convicting on this soul, too, that stands before you. But remember also, God is for us and not against us. So the results of all this testing, of all these motives we examine, God looking at our hearts, and He wants us to look at our hearts, the results are spiritual freedom and deliverance if our motivation is love for Him. Again, that's where God's taking us. That's sanctification. And He has to do it. Our role is surrender in faith. Look at what the Lord said to Israel a couple chapters later. Go to Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Is this not exciting? Is this not part of you knowing God's purpose for you? And that when He tests you, it's intentional? It's not like some accident that He's forgotten about you? That He's testing your heart and that's because He loves you as a father and He's like training you up? That should be encouraging. That should be even exciting. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set His affection to love them, And he chose their descendants after them, even you, above all peoples, as it is this day. So, Jews, who God has done all this for, so, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Maybe God's saying that to us. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. As we know, the Lord wants our hearts. And he told the Jews to circumcise their own hearts. Isn't that what he says? Circumcise your heart. Allah free will. And he calls for our unconditional surrender the changing of our very motives in life. He's not satisfied with lip service and he's not satisfied with um, dutiful actions. Do you know what I mean? Going through the motions to satisfy him in that way. He's not satisfied with rituals. He wants all of us. He wants our hearts. He wants our very motives, therefore. He's not going (laughs) to rest until he tests us this way and grows us up. The sooner we surrender, the sooner the Lord will take care of us in every way beyond what we could have imagined. That's the good news. That's our Father who said in verse uh, 13, His statutes which I am commanding you today for your good. He's not going to give up on us, so to speak. So as we're reminded on Sunday, and uh, we might call this circumcise your heart, godly sorrow 
leads to something imperative to sanctification, namely repentance, 2 Corinthians 7.11. And that's a very good thing. Godly sorrow leads to something imperative for sanctification, repentance. Go to 2 Corinthians 7.11 again. 2 Corinthians 7.11. For years you may have been rejecting the truth in some area of your life, even though you knew it. It takes one thing to move forward and be set free, and that is humility. So we must let godly sorrow work in our lives because it's good. It's actually necessary even to sanctification. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. On the board, we saw this on Sunday. The sorrow of the world, this refers to the sentiments and judgments the world clings to regarding a convicting conscience. The sorrow here is diametrically different than godly sorrow because it is induced by bad data. For example, sinful doctrines and the flesh are being offended. Look at verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. I mean, just look at that statement before we go any further, folks. Godly sorrow produces earnestness for the things of God. Without repenting, without falling on your knees, you will not develop a uh, craving for the things of God or an appreciation for the things of God. So again, verse 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. As our dear pastor reminded us of, truth always breaks the chains of bondage. And we've we got to accept the truth, i.e. godly sorrow, like Repentance is vital to sanctification. And on the board, truth is like a sledgehammer on the back of sin. It's crushing. And thank God for that. That makes it painful, but it's freeing. Because once it's dead, it's dead. The Spirit got real with us on Sunday, and something uh, that really wears on our pastor's heart at times is that people simply don't want the truth. Overall, generally speaking, even in our own church at times, people simply don't want the truth. They don't really want it. I've been there where I had to hear that statement and examine myself and be like, you know what? I've been uh, playing a game in this area of my life. Do you really want the truth or not? The flesh doesn't. It's always fighting you tooth and nail. Sin has so thoroughly deceived us, we don't even realize it many times. We think we're on the right track. We must willingly allow the truth to unsettle us. That also came out on Sunday. We must willingly allow the truth to unsettle us. Nobody likes to be unsettled. 
But this is good. Like, this is really good. It's really deep. Uh, it, gets, it gets to the roots of our problem, the sin within us. And it sets us free. But it takes faith. Without the truth, our lives are horrible anyway, aren't they? How many times do we need to learn the hard way? How many times do we need to come to a dead end? Stop clinging to dung. Stop clinging to dung. Like Paul said, it's disgusting. It has no value in it. John 3.20, we saw in the Amplified. For every wrongdoer hates the light and does not come to the light, but shrinks from it for fear that his sinful, worthless activities will be exposed and condemned. That's what your sin nature feels like. I don't want to go to the light. As came out on Sunday, if we run away from the light, we run into the arms of sin. It's one or the other. You can't stay in the middle. You're going towards God or away from God. You're going towards God and away from sin, or you're going away from God and you're going towards sin. So that results in death if we do that. And that's a horrible life. That's the horrible pains of separation from God. So we'll close this way. Let God crack open your walnut, i.e. your hard head. Let God crack open your walnut, your thick skull, that remains stubborn in at least one or two areas of your life. How was it in Deuteronomy 10.16, which we already read, but this is in the English Standard Version? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's what God's really concerned with. That's, what a, that's the picture of real circumcision. Physical cir- circumcision is a cutting of real flesh, symbolic of our flesh, the sin nature. Circumcise your heart, the foreskin of your heart. Don't be stubborn anymore. And that implies, cut, implies cutting. That's painful. That's not enjoyable. A spiritual cutting of the flesh, which the flesh runs away from, won't let you get near it. That's our sin nature. But God says, just do this thing. It, your free will is involved here. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and don't be stubborn anymore. Don't be stubborn and unrepentant, which leads to death and misery. Let the word crack open the superficial you. We don't like giving up the superficial us, the one that poses in the mirror, we pose in the mirror with, um, the one, the image that we put on for others, and even God sometimes playing good while our heart might be evil. Let God's word crack open the superficial you to get to the real you. We're all such, uh, you know, posers at times. Let him crack you open and just, even if you have to cry, even if you have to just walk around uh, solemn for a while in the reality of who you really are without God. But then embrace the forgiveness and love he gives you even after he discovers your bad motivations. That's where God wants you to be, totally relying on Him for sanctification. There's no other way. And then you have the chance to be the real you. Weaknesses and all, you have a chance to be the real you, the surrendered 
you, the one who is moldable and shapeable into a vessel of honor that lets God do his work. It was kind of like Ann Parent talked about at the end of her Real Talk interview. Um, hopefully you saw that, but just about being yourself to stop comparing to others and stop playing the game and embrace who God made you to be and what he's done for you. See, when we surrender, when we go down in godly sorrow, God's then able to lift you up in the new, in the new you. You know, the new, the new you, the, the redeemed you, the free you. But you have to go down before you come up. It has to be brand new, right? It's like death, burial, and resurrection. But this is experientially we're talking about. Until we go down, we can't be lifted up in the new us. Instead of like trying to go straight there in our flesh, right? And be this new creature on our own. You got to bow. You got to be willing to be sorrowful, to, to, to be brought low so that God can bring you high in a totally new way. God can exalt you in a totally new, undeserved way. He's doing all this, all this testing to set us free. So remember that as we close on the board. Circumcise your heart. God would much rather we just surrender and say thank you. It really is as simple as that. We take all different routes getting there, but if we're willing, if we're finally ready to bow the knee experientially, God would much rather we just surrender and say thank you and let him sanctify you. Amen? All right, let's bow. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your grace, your Holy Spirit bringing these things to light, bringing all the scriptures together for us like this and showing us our, our, our problems and our superficialities. And Father, we ask that you supernaturally act upon us and set us free from these things. Help us to submit and surrender to you in every area of our lives, wherever your light shines, so that we can be totally cleaned out and made new and have a new life that you intended. We thank you in advance for your grace and gentleness and patience toward us as well. We ask that you bless us as we go. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.